Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of Girls Gone Canon, John 2 in a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet as at Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizenArborGold.com. And I am Eliana, another one of your hosts. And you might know me as Glass Table Girl over on Reddit on the Maester Monthly podcast, or maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Hey guys, we're excited to be here for another fun packed episode of Jon Snow. No frowns to be had here. Everything's going great. No emotions. <laughs> There's a lot happening. There's Spoiler so much alert. happening. Oh my god, this this episode is thick with two C's. <laughs> Maybe even three, but definitely two. <sighs> definitely not part five of the dance of the dra- anyways, so we have a Patreon episode, of course, coming out this July, and as all of you know, we have celebrated an important holiday here in the United States. We are going to talk about Northern Independence. Pops bottles! Boo! 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 <laughs> that sound like sirens? It does. Thanks. Maybe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Northern Independence, bitches! We're going to talk about the North their struggle for independence, how they once conquered all of the uh, lesser kings of the north, how they became the kings in the north, when it made that switch from kings of winter over to king in the north, all that. We're going to talk about all that good stuff in our Patreon episode this month. You can check it out when it comes out for $5 on Patreon. $5 a month gets you that. Some uh, extra notes, some other fun goodies. You'll see if you join up. And you get to enjoy all of the past Patreon episodes, like last month's episode four of The Dance of the Dragons, where we covered Cregan Stark coming south. A lot of good parallels there with the end of the Game of Thrones show, if you've ever heard of it. So Hoops. check it out. Patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. But speaking of Northern Matters... Hey, week and a half or two weeks ago, we talked about a story that Warren had sent us, an Irish story of lore, and we got a couple messages because, of course, as much as I attempted to retain the two YouTube videos I watched on it, Irish is so hard, which our friend Neve has pointed out at Neom, it's Neve underscore in there somewhere she had said that she loved the episode and gave us a quick note on the pronunciations because irish is hard about the hard g and oj og was there and oisen which is not rhyme with hoisin sauce uh it's actually ushin we did talk about this last week but it turns out you and i talked too much so it got cut <laughs> uh but yeah so neve had told us a little bit of a pronunciation guidance and june also our buddy june coates had also written in so we will do better next time we're trying we're trying but it is hard it is a hard language i know a little bit of scottish pronunciation so you'd think i would at least get my shit together but i guess i never will thank you for writing in neve and of course june for helping us learn a little bit more about the different cultures that inspire song of ice and fire oh that rhymes. Ooh, that was very rhyming. Yeah. Speaking of other things that rhyme, like poetry, let's talk about some of the themes about John's family and those sigils. We got some tweets from Lady of Chaos, aka Chaotic Pegasus. Oh, is she a winged horse lady? Because, okay. I didn't realize until I listened to Girls Gone Canon on John in A Game of Thrones that John was running away and dreaming of living a life in the shadows where no one would know or acknowledge him while having a 
giant white dire wolf, most recognized on site, facepalm emoji. <laughs> John is just peak chaotic energy. I didn't I love notice this. it until right now, but Lady of Chaos must be the like authority on chaos. Her screen name is Chaotic oh, that's underscore right. Pegasus. She's the Lady of Chaos. So her telling us about John's chaotic energy, that's like that's peak Lady of Chaos. I mean, she yeah, as you said, she's an authority. She gets to decide what's chaotic and not and she's teaching us and i i just thought that was hilarious and i loved it you know uh lord commander mertens one of our friends michael he had responded with it's big teenager energy you want to be alone and not bothered but you also want people to think you're great and special (laughs) it's so true it's so true i love that this lord and this lady came to assist us in our time of need the, God, these are the banners. Yeah, Everyone. raise the banners. Lord Commander Mertens. Cheers. Here's to you. Raise a glass of Dornish Swill. There's a glass for Lord right Commander Mertens. A glass for Lady of Chaos. Thank you. The Lady of Chaos. I love it. And I have some exciting news. Do you want to hear it, Eliana? Mm. I always mm. want to hear exciting news. Mm. 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 <laughs> well, we have a friend coming on next week. <gasps> yeah. Episode oh. 59. Uh, we're gonna have a friend. Yeah, almost <laughs> nice. Almost nice. Okay. John three. Uh, we we kind of wanted to make it a threesome for our cave episode, oh. so we invited on Vanessa Cole from the <gasps> Knights Cast. Yes, I like that you're gasping. You just gasped like you didn't know. Did you not know we did this? <laughs> I didn't know. I wanted to be surprised and excited all over again, so I made myself forget. You told me to forget, sir. <laughs> Yes, we are getting Vanessa Cole from Night's Cast. She is coming on. Our people talk to her people. Uh, it's all A-OK. Red M&M's only in the green room. She'll be here for John 3. So we hope you get to listen and enjoy with us. Uh, we're going to have a fun time staying in that cave with oh. Vanessa. I'm sorry. Yeah, and this has been a long time coming. We've been trying to find this. It has! <laughs> But Wait, you do you said- mean sing in the cave? Oh, let's keep. I'm keeping that, guys. This pun was not intended, but let. I'm, I'm trying to regain myself. <laughs> this episode with Vanessa has been in the pipeline for a while. Oh my god, in the pipeline for a while. That's not any better. Close. <laughs> We're going to get ourselves together by the time Vanessa comes on. <laughs> we're we we're going to arrange ourselves. We're going to arrange ourselves by the time she comes on. Okay. Sorry, Vanessa. Anyway, so we've been trying to find an episode that makes sense for her to come on. We know that she has a lot of great thoughts on John and also really loves Egret. And we thought this was going to be a perfect chance to have her talk about these two characters and she's done some amazing art of Egret. If you haven't checked exactly. it out, we've talked about it on previous podcasts. We'll have to share it again. Uh, we'll give you a link to her profile because it is just good. Yes. And of course, if you are excited about Vanessa coming on and haven't heard her yet, absolutely check her out over on the Night's Cast. Yeah, the Night's Cast has some great episodes. They did a lot of great show coverage, and they're moving on to cover some other things coming up about Game of Thrones. And I'm also really excited. I hope they cover some of Blood Moon when that comes oh, out. Oh, yeah. 
I think they're gonna have some great takes on Blood Moon. So I'm looking forward to that. And they're still they're still making episodes, and they've got a really fun cast. And both Chloe and I are excited to collaborate with Vanessa again. Yes, we've had a lot of fun. We got to be on with them. Was it episode five? Of season eight? I think it was four. Yes, yes, it was episode four. Yeah, it was a fun time, though. It was a little bit right after Ice and Fire Con. I'm excited to get back together with her. We will see how it goes next week. Yes. But as always, that throws us into our lightning round. Eliana, are you going to start us up? Spark us up? So, Daenerys won. Jorah decides to project on a 14-year-old girl some more. And he tries to turn her away from Ariston, who actually offers her some knowledge on her family. Thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah, I do. Always. Bran won. Bran masters controlling his third eye. Jojen warns Bran of spending too much time in Summer's skin and pushes them toward the wall. Davos too. Davos is taken into arrest upon scheming to kill Melisandre after his arrival to Dragonstone. Jamie too. Jamie takes a trip down ye old memory lane on his time as a knight while staying in an inn with Cleos Frey and Brienne of Tarth. Tyrion too. Tyrion catches up on court gossip and personnel change in a <laughs> visit to Varys and uses him to get a last visit with Shay. But Tyrion finds himself unable to send her away for her own protection. Arya too. Arya and co. come across some king's men in the woods. Catelyn, too. Rob returns from the West, and Catelyn finds herself getting out of punishment for letting Jamie go free pretty easily. He's lost the phrase and married a girl from the crag? That leads us right into John, too. While John surveys Mance's army, Orel's eagle attacks him. Rattleshirt takes him to see Mance at the Fist of the First Men, and some of John's lies are unraveled. He must tell Mance the truth of the Watch's size, and the situation is tense, until Egret pipes in. Saved by his very own spearwife, John is assigned to a task force that climbs the wall the next day. So you get to say pipes in. All right. <laughs> All about that pipe work. Okay. We're going to get ourselves together by next week. The Are first we? line... No, we're not, because the first line of this chapter isn't big enough for you. <laughs> That's what Torment yeah. says to John. That's the chapter opening. All right. And then John walks with Torment and sees all of these giants mounted upon Snuffle Up a guy ahead, oh and snowflakes are settling in their hair. In John's arc, snowflakes have always been very reminiscent of him remembering his family and times with them and goodbyes with the Stark siblings. And we're starting to see part of him drift between that fantasy of belonging home at Winterfell with those people, but also belonging with this people. The other half is trying to desperately stay separate, but at the same time, this is kind of becoming a family in a way. Ghost doesn't like the snuffle up a guy, and so he silently snarls at them and backs away. John then loses count of the giants emerging in the pale mist, and he thinks that there must be hundreds. Pale mist. I was also thinking, I was like, oh, pale mist. He remembers old man's stories. In old man's stories, giants were outsized men who lived in colossal castles, fought with huge swords, and walked about in boots a boy could hide in. These were something else, more bear-like than human, and as woolly as the mammoths they rode. They're not wearing skins, John realized. That's her. Shaggy pelts covered their bodies, thick below the waist, sparser above. 
The stink that came off them was choking, but perhaps that was the mammoths. And Jorman blew the horn of winter and awoke giants from earth. He looked for great swords ten feet long, but saw only clubs. Most were just the limbs of dead trees, some still trailing shattered branches. A few had stone balls lashed to the ends to make colossal mauls. The song never says if the horn can put them back to sleep. So I love all the detail that we get on the giants upon first seeing them, and not going to talk too long about it, but there was this really fun post back in 2014 by user I Hate Fountainhead over on Reddit, where he created a cryptozoological analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire, Part 1 Giants. Cryptozoology is like, you know, fake zoology. It's fun and talks about all of the different biological features and things about the giants and how they would have evolved to have these features based around this like pseudoscience. It's just a really fun series and they also made a couple more. Like one of them is about the children of the forest. We'll drop a link. It's just fun. Check it out. Yeah, lots of sciencey stuff. Really good. I love that the idea of whole, of the song never says if the horn can put them back to sleep. It reminds me of Pandora's box a little bit, right? Like all of A Song of Ice and Fire has that same dangerous feel to it that like all of these dangers and evils have been let loose. There's no way to really put them back in. But there's still kind of this hope that the children of the story, especially Carrie, throughout the entire journey, and especially the Starks, like John and it also makes me think a little bit of Hesiod's work in days, mm. the poem. It, it, it makes me think of the Night's Queen almost as a Pandora figure. Hmm. And maybe she's some sort of symbolism of theodicy and an answer to the evils in A Song of Ice and Fire. Because in Hesiod's work in days, the gods contribute to making Pandora. Hephaestus is the god of blacksmiths and metalworking, etc., etc., who creates Pandora on Zeus's orders. Athena dresses her up in a silvery gown and gives her some skills. Aphrodite gives her grace and longing, and the other gods give her jewels. And Hermes gives her lies and deceit. She later opens a jar that got translated into being a box given to her, and it consists of, oh, all the bad shit in all the world ever. And the metaphor is that now it's all women's fault. So just keep that in mind. But the very first woman, Eve, in some fictional stories as well, have a lot of similarities, right? And I think maybe we're looking at the wrong thing here, that it's not the Night's Queen and Eve and uh, Pandora that are the blame takers here. They shouldn't take the blame, these mythos ladies. It's likely the man for wanting them, right? Blame men. Always. I say, always. But <laughs> always. I say that because... In Theogony, one of Hesiod's pieces, one of the earlier stories of Pandora, from her is the race of women and female kind. Of her is the deadly race and tribe of women who live among mortal men to their great trouble. No helpmates in hateful poverty, but only in wealth. And then you get in Bran 4 in A Storm of Swords that line about the Night Queen or the Night's Queen or the Night King, his chick that he stole, whatever. A woman was his downfall, a woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice, and when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. There's just a lot similar there, and it reminds me of how wanting is kind of that death of your story. And John and Egret is kind of like this as well, a woman was his downfall. Right? A woman glimpsed from atop the wall. Yes. I love 
the way that you phrased all this because this idea of love, right, is something that is running through A Song of Ice and Fire, regardless of which way it goes. But here we see it often, like, manifested through a woman. We see people projecting things onto women a lot in A Song of Ice and Fire and it leading to their downfall, regardless of whether the woman does anything or not, right? And I think to John's virtue, he doesn't do that. And he tries to stand by his values regardless. And, I mean, we keep coming back to this quote, but you were wrong to love her and you were wrong to leave her. Hmm. Just because we feel like getting sad. It's time to get sad again. We just got here. <laughs> so, Torben speaks to a giant who has a spattering of gray fur all over him. And once more, John, in typical John fashion, asks, is this one the giant's king? And it's like, no, John. No, you're wrong again. Because John is very obsessed for some reason with trying to identify the kings that he sees, like in other cultures or even within <laughs> his own. And then he learns that giants actually have no kings. And the way that Tormund phrases it is like, giants have no kings, no more in mammoths do, nor snow bears, nor the great whales of the gray sea. He's saying that, like, nature doesn't really have kings. And he ends it with, I know your kneeler's knees must be itching for want of some king to bend to. Once again, though, John's expectations on what a king looks like are subverted because, like, they just don't have kings. But it also gives us a starting point for John's understanding of these other cultures, finally. Because especially north of the Wall, like, this actually makes it much more meaningful when he has to be the one in dance explaining to, like, Stannis, like, no, dude. People don't follow lords and kings, or they don't, like, marriage alliances don't mean what you think they do, because it's not, like, down here. <laughs> it's completely different. Like, this is exactly, John learns from this, and he is skeptical, which is really interesting, especially since at the very beginning of the books, he's sitting there going, they'll send someone to help the watch, won't they? And then a king finally shows up to help the watch. He's like, dude, that's not how any of this works. You know that, right? Like, this is not... You, it's like when you've been through a merger and you get a new manager. And you're yeah. like, good luck. That's a perfect example. Actually, yeah, that was a very good example now that I think, like, a merger. But mm. it's multiple, right? It's like a big company coming in and they're trying to merge several things. And they're like, do we buy this other company too? And John's like, we need to buy the other company also. And everyone's like, no, we don't want them. He's like, we need them. They have no worth. And you're like, what the fuck? And he's like, yeah. no, we need them. <laughs> they're gonna die. <laughs> uh, so Tormund and the giant have actually a really funny exchange I won't go into it deeply, but basically they're like, you're inbred. No, you're inbred. And it's just no, like I'm this back Peter. and forth. Oh my god. No, you're non. Oh. Thanks. And <laughs> that was a really good pun. Thank it you. Really, this is a good exchange, everyone. Oh. This is better than the one that was in the book. Let's be real. You're hired. Uh, <laughs> Tormund speaks the giant in the old tongue. And so David J. Peterson, who wrote the languages for HBO, uh, for Game of Thrones. I, he's coming to Ice and Fire Con next I'm year. So it's been announced. Excited. I know. I have so many questions for him. And uh, I want to ask him, you know, like, do you have any of the old tongue written? Because they didn't do anything for the old tongue on the show. But I do want to know, like, maybe he has an idea of what he wants it to sound like, even. Because the First Men not only had a language, they also spoke in runes. Like House Royce, how they have the runes on their sigil. 
Yeah, those were First Men runes. In the World of Ice and Fire, the Iron Isles section, they talk about this. The First Men spoke in runes. And George has also said before in a So Spake Martin that he didn't have the whole language in his desk the way that Tolkien did, you know. Tolkien's a philologist. He's an Oxford Don. He could spend decades working and inventing Elvish and its detail. And George is a hardworking sci-fi and fantasy novelist, and he doesn't really have that same gift. He has had not at this point, I think this was like early, early, early 2000s, created a Valyrian language. So David J. Peterson pretty much created that he was the language master so that's really cool that george just like had no vision for it but david listened and he created very cool yeah yeah he built like entire systems and languages out of them you can i think see them on dothraki.com or org one of those yeah and they're on duolingo if you log on duolingo yeah you can get yeah do you want to learn one with me we could do that. I have cousins in the Philippines who were really into they were really into Lord of the Rings and they learned Elvish for a while. Would you rather learn Dothraki or would you rather learn Valyrian? I think Valyrian's more useful, I guess. Let's learn Scroth, even though David never put it in the show. It sounds like crackling ice and very metal, but yes. I don't think it's and on there. And we've listened to it. We've listened to it. Scroth. Okay. Um. I already speak it. So <laughs> something else of note in this passage, it's something that we learn eventually in some brand chapters in brand two in A Dance with Dragons, for example. We don't get a lot in the old tongue, but we do get this phrase, wo dak na gran. And that in the old tongue means squirrel, which is what the giants call the children of the forest. Uh, and that's from Brand 2 in A Dance of Dragons. And in the true tongue, that means those who sing the song of the earth. That was before even the old tongue was spoken. This was like before the giants talk. And I love that this gets brought up because in Brand 2 in A Game of Thrones, Ned calls Bran a squirrel for climbing the tower. That's such a good connection. I really like it. And there's even this bit later on in A Storm of Swords in Arya 3, where Arya says to Greenbeard that she's not a squirrel, and Greenbeard says that she's a little gold squirrel who's off to see Beric Dondarrion, whether she wants to or not. And then again in A Storm of Swords in Arya 6, she gets called an angry squirrel by Greenbeard. And then if you scoot forward to Bran 2 in A Dance of Dragons again, Bran thinks that Leaf is his sister Arya. Uh, he says, and yet there she was, whirling a scrawny thing, ragged, wild, her hair a tangle. Tears filled Hodor's eyes and froze there. Yeah, I think that's such a great connection. And this is clearly like something that George is like putting together later on, but it all comes together really well. And Arya, of course, we see has a gift for also skin changing, not as well as Bran, obviously we right, don't know right. if she's like i don't know in the middle between she's learning yeah she's like probably on par with john maybe a little less right because she's still only learning about it but she has other animals such as cats none of these are squirrels but you know right now they're all just kind of she's a secret squirrel <laughs> i've been waiting for so long to do that <laughs> Hey, there's also this part that kind of translates to A Dance with Dragons, where we talked about in Theon's chapters how Mm. Rowan had a name that was very godly and connected with trees, and we talked about, you know, just different symbolism there, but also Squirrel, the washerwoman, Mm kind of connects there. Man, she was great. John wheeled and followed Tormund back toward the head of the column, his new cloak hanging heavy from his shoulders. 
It was made of unwashed sheepskins, worn fleece side in, as the wildlings suggested. It kept the snow off well enough, and at night it was good and warm, but he kept his black cloak as well, folded up beneath the saddle. I love this quote. It's got so much in here uh, that tells John's story, because it's not just the girl and women characters who tell their story through their clothes. John's story is full of it as well, because we know he's nervous about pretending to join the wildlings, but George conveys it here by talking about that new cloak hanging heavy on John's shoulders. And it shows the weight of this decision and that responsibility, that turning cloak is a burden on him because of that weight, because it's heavy. And then along with that, we know that John has two cloaks, and this tells us about John's internal conflict and where his heart truly lies. We see this with other members of John's family. For example, Sansa kept Sanders' cloak, showing that even when someone wasn't a knight nominally, she held on to the ideas and the values that the stories taught her about what true knighthood is because she saw it through him. Oh, are you not gonna... Okay. I'm gonna, but I was just being proud. Because you literally changed what you were gonna say. You were gonna say he wasn't a true knight, and then you said even though nominally he wasn't a true knight, you changed it. You were trying to say overall, you knew. You knew no, better. it's because I actually, like, misremembered the quote. Because the one who's not a true knight is Gregor. That's yeah. what it's about. Well, Sansa um, thinks that Sandor is also not a true knight. She thinks, like, he was no true knight, but he saved me all the same. But yes, Sansa holding on to those ideals and values, and there's that whole entire thought, that quote, she had kept the cloak, you know, beneath her summer silks in her cedar chest. She could not say why. And she draws strength from that, in the same way that John is drawing strength from that black cloak that's hidden beneath his saddles here, because not only that, it's his version of... Arya's needle, right? Like, she hides it from the faceless men, but she can't bear to get rid of it, uh, even though she's gotten rid of everything else, because needle, for her, is home. It's her family. It's Jon Snow's smile. So Jon keeping and hiding that black cloak is symbolic of his loyalty to the Night's Watch, and as we see later on, what he feels is his duty to protect his family. And he doesn't take that duty, nor does he wear this new cloak lightly. And it's really what you said it's it's strength. It's what keeps them going, right? This is what they're holding on to. This is what's keeping them going. It's like when Sandor says in Game of Thrones that what kept you going? Hate. Uh, this is what kept Sansa going. The fact that, you know, like, there's that one piece of knighthood that does exist in the world. It is real and there is good in the re- world and she's going to keep following it. You know, that's what this is. And for John. It's him holding that black cloak and saying, like, there is good and I will follow it. Yes, absolutely. And then we get this exchange. And Chloe has put here in caps that it would be rude not to do it for the people. And, you know, we, we're we givers. You know, we're benevolent. We are. We're going to do it. We really, really are. Uh, I'm ready. Are you ready? I, I guess so. Is it true you killed a giant once? He asked Tormund as they rode. Ghost loped silently beside them, leaving paw prints in the new-fallen snow. Now why would you doubt a mighty man like me? It was winter, and I was half a boy, and stupid the way boys are. I went too far, and my horse died, and then a storm caught me. 
A true storm, not no little dusting such as this. Har! I knew I'd freeze to death before it broke, so I found me a sleeping giant, cut open her belly, and crawled up right inside her. Kept me warm enough, she did, but the stink near did for me. The worst thing was, she woke up when the spring come, and took me for her babe, suckled me for three whole moons before I could get away. Ha! There's times I miss the taste of giant's milk, though. If she nursed you, you couldn't have killed her. I never did, but see you don't go spreading that about. Torment giant's bane has a better ring to it than torment giant's babe. That's the honest truth of it. A few thoughts coming off of this. First, this is his. We used to climb 20 miles uphill both ways in the snow. Uh, this is his, like, when we were young, stupid boys. I remember my dad would tell me stories. Like, one time he told me a story about how he pissed off of, like, a like a bridge and peed on cop cars or some shit when he was younger. Like, That's you know, cute. just crazy, like, stupid shit that they did when they were boys. This is like a, you know how young boys are. We're idiots. Uh, but also... Second, second of the third, Tormund Giant's Babe. This is where that starts. This is a good, uh, a good nickname for him. I love Tormund Giant's Babe. And my Bad. third thing is, this is actually where the show took that whole Tormund Milk moment from season eight, if you recall, and it made me really happy. It was just nice that Cogman had uh, noticed this and talked about it. Yeah, Cogman, he tried. He tried to make things happen. Episode two was great. Funny aside regarding walking uphill both ways, I guess it's not in the snow, but it is possible to go both ways uphill in San Francisco. Apparently my friends did it because they took some crazy route when they were going back and forth from somewhere. But also, Tormund not killing the giant kind of reminds me of John Spearing Egret. Mm. Though I guess Tormund was kind of fine with the giant dying or else he wouldn't have cut her open in the first place, which thus then also kind of reminds me, of course, of the Tauntauns in Star Wars, because there's no way that this isn't inspired by that. I refuse to believe that this is not inspired oh, by that. Yeah. But circling back to that thought about Tormund not killing that last giant, quote unquote, you know, that whole, especially with the song The Last of the Giants, obviously Aww. that's kind of how we feel about this, right? Is that another thought of like, John killing the last of the dragons. Anyways. Um, we'll get so, back to that soon. Yeah, John asks him where his other nicknames come from, but he specifically thinks about the last one, Hornblower, and he wonders if Tormund is going to be the one to bring down the wall, and if Mance may have given him the Horn of Winter that they're looking for. And of course, so instead of the story that John really wants, Tormund tells him the story of how he fucked a bear. He was snowed in, he had a hankering for a sweet, young, fantastical thing that lived nearby, and he left. He found a woman with a temper on her, but it turns out it was a bear. All ripped and torn I was, and half me member bit right off. And there, on me floor, was a she-bear's pelt. And soon enough, the free folk were telling tales of this bold bear seen in the woods with the queerest pair of cubs behind her. Har! <laughs> so, this is the birth of all of the crazy Mormont theories that it was probably Mage Mormont and that he's the father of all of the Mormont girls. Fun fan theory, what do you think? It's cute. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's not true. I don't gonna... think it matters. 
I will say I have that, you know, I think that Rob's will, which is, of course, with Mage Mormont right now, somewhere, allegedly, if she brings it, it to John, well, if she makes it all the way up to John and tells him about it at the wall, that's an intricate, I think, plot device for getting Mage and Tormund back together in the same room. Yeah, I think it's stuck at Howland Reed, so. But the ship. <laughs> so, John asks what Tormund would do if he found that bear again, since she already bit half his dick off. And Tormund's like, well, my dick is so fucking big that it doesn't really fucking matter, Jon Snow, how much my dick she bit off, because it's still huge. <laughs> I love Tormund. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of awkward, though, this, like, scene. I'm like, oh, she fought back, whatever, I guess. Yeah, it's a little weird. I feel uncomfortable. Maybe don't fuck a bear, Tormund. Uh, Yeah. He asks John if he's a eunuch, if the rumors about joining the wall are true, if they truly geld you. And John's, like, pretty offended. He's like, um... He's waiting for Tormund to be like, prove it. Prove your dick's still there. <laughs> and Tormund's like, if you Do have it. a dick, why isn't it in Egret already? No one believes you. Everyone in the group knows you guys are like a thing. And John's like, I'm a man of the watch. And he's like blushing. And he's like, why am I blushing if I've, you know, abandoned the watch? It shouldn't matter, right? Ha ha ha. I like that the language is he's like blushing like a maid. And I'm like, that's because you are a maid, yeah. John. Yeah, like when he thought about uh, kissing and how he's like, it was like kissing a maid, and we're like, okay. No, fire doesn't okay. feel like that. <laughs> you don't know. Mm, okay. So he rides with Egret and Tormund most of the days, which is a suggestion from Mance when he first joins, because most of the free folk don't trust him. They find him a crow and an oathbreaker, and it's not very, you know, respectable thing to be. Each night, Egret lays her sleeping furs next to him, no matter what he does, and she cuddles up to him. So he starts to use ghost as a barrier between them, and it reminds him of this tale that Old Nan would tell. Old Nan used to tell stories about knights and their ladies who would sleep in a single bed with a blade between them for honor's sake, but he thought this must be the first time where a direwolf took the place of the sword. You know the uh, butterfly meme that is this blank meme? <laughs> I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna do that on our podcast That's IRL. Fantastic. Is this gestures butterfly foreshadowing? <laughs> the direwolf took the place of the sword. So the direwolf stands in between John's honor and his love for Egret, and I can imagine that's going to keep coming in the future. Especially if what we saw on the chair show, the fancy iron chair show, if that comes true with the season finale and series finale, because we get that line that love is the bane of honor, the death of duty. What is honor compared to a woman's love? And here, John's honor is the direwolf in between him and the woman, him and the lady, the knight and the lady. Yes, and it's like his family standing between it. And I. I love the, the way last that, of the Starks. Yeah, that you phrase this because, like, I couldn't figure out. I was like, "This is meaningful," but I can't figure it out. But you got it. <laughs> um, side note: you described it as the chair show. I think what was it, Sesame Street or the Muppets? One of them actually did One a parody of, of Game was, of Thrones. Uh, Sesame Street. Yeah, they did a parody of Game of Thrones, and they actually called it like the musical chairs show or something, and like did a parody of musical chairs as Game of Thrones. It was great. That's beautiful. I love it. I'll link it. It's actually hilarious. <laughs> it's really good. 
And then it's another day, and John says he wants a hot bath, and Egret's like, you stupid spoiled bitch, because you have to take a cold bath. And it's actually way better, she says, especially when you have someone else to warm you up afterwards. And he's like, mm, but our clothes are going to be wet and cold, and that kind of sucks. Are we going to die from freezing or exposure? She's like, you don't, you don't wear your, come the fuck on, John. You don't wear your fucking clothes, dipshit. And he's like, I'm not going in at all, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and he rides off with Tormund, fucking emo bitch. I know, I love that John's such a teenage boy in this moment because, you know, he's just like, I'm just not going to bathe, which is like, teenage boys learning, learning hygiene. Not only that, but it's like avoiding a girl. <laughs> all of it, all of it, yeah. everything. Amazing. Love it. <laughs> he wants to be what was what did Michael Yates what did what did Lord Commander Merton say chaotic you want to be alone and not bothered but you also want people to think you are great and special take a shower John then we could talk about you being great and special actually that's true if you take a cold shower right that's the joke if he takes a cold bath that should take care of things too won't it oh my god it'll take care of some things because they'll just invert into him um, that's what Tormund says will happen if you don't use it yeah exactly so it's happening to him one way or another yeah. um, the wildlings though seem to think that Egret is special and beautiful because of her red hair she's kissed by fire they say and John's like well she's not traditionally pretty uh, and by that he means courtly beautiful I'm like shut the fuck up John but she still stirs his loins <laughs> especially when she sits near the flames with the light in her hair and she smiles at him or if she sings him a song. I like what you caught last episode. You talked about the flames capturing Egret's beauty and how you thought about Daenerys in that moment and her flames and that kind of foreshadows his romance with her to come. And the fire probably won't really be seen as beautiful eventually, right? When it comes to Danny, uh, maybe if she's burning people possibly, but Later in this chapter, we learn John thinks Egret reminds him of Arya in a way, which, of course, kind of weird, you know, 93 pitch letter vibes where Arya, Tyrion, and John had a pretty serious love triangle. I digress. It brings up some mighty big Lyanna comparisons, too. I'm sure we'll bring that up more throughout this chapter and in the next couple chapters. But a lot to think about when it comes to him thinking of Egret and looking at Egret and how he views her. Yeah, he decided, I guess, to steer away from the Arya and the straight-up Evangelion plot and just go for, like, the Evangelion light one. Oh my god. I'm not joking. <laughs> but he was a man of the Night's Watch. He had taken a vow. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. He had said the words before the Weirwood, before his father's guards. He could not unsay them. No more than he could admit the reason for his reluctance to torment Thunderfist, father to Baz. I feel like I'm still grinning every time you see the voice. Thank you. I'm still excited every time. Honestly, it's very exhausting, but it's worth it for the people. <laughs> it's worth it for me. Yeah, for you mostly. <laughs> I, I, will, I will sacrifice you for me. Wait. <laughs> Wait. Okay. Are you sure? Danny, is this you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Torment doesn't understand why John won't just bang Egret because she obviously likes him. And he's like, I'm pretty sure you like her too. And John's like, uh, I am too young to get married. And <laughs> okay. Torment's like, um, nobody said anything about marriage. Fucking virgin. Um, M2Ms, don't say you love me, plays in the background. And John's like, 
but she stood up for me. I can't dishonor her by giving her a baby. You guys, it's because he's a bastard. He doesn't want to have a bastard because he is a bastard. Yeah. That was subtext. It really is, though. And, like, John's rationale here in this conversation is just such a perfect echo to the chapter that comes right before it. Like, the language that he uses, where in that cat chapter, she learns that Rob has just wed Jane Westerling because he would not dishonor her. But really, the whole time, Rob was thinking about John because this is a thing that John thinks about. But also, Torben's like, we have birth control up here. Moon tea. Like, if Egret doesn't want a kid, she could just go in the woods and then bleed for two weeks really thickly. And she's going to be in pain, so she'll probably double over a lot. Sorry, I've seen it happen. Uh, just Depending saying. on the tea. So, Sylphium. So, spelled S-I-L-P-H-I-U-M. The exact identity of the plant Sylphium is unclear because it's a now extinct plant. It was maybe a giant fennel, but it was used so extensively in ancient um, medicine for a lot of things, for coughs, sore throats, fevers, and especially as a contraceptive and abortificient. Oh, abortificient, um, okay. Yeah, that it was basically used to extinction. So now we don't have this. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tansy. So John thinks... A strong son or a lively laughing girl kissed by fire. Where's the harm in that? Oh, sad. Oh. Just for a second, he lets himself think that. Just for one second. Where's the harm? They're going to start a new family. What? Where yeah. the others are. I hope he gets to, man. I hope if the, 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 the chair show is... Correct, which it is. I mean, George said it would be. So if that's really what happens, I hope maybe Val is there waiting for him, dude. I don't know. I hope he gets some happiness. I don't think he's fertile, regardless. Dying must do something to your semen. Dying and being a zombie has to do something to it. I mean, look at your stepmom. She didn't turn out so hot. Yeah, agreed. For (laughs) sure. For sure. Torment is incredulous at John's pure stubbornness, though, at fathering a bastard. He's like, well, go find a beer then. Because if you don't do something, as we said, Torment thinks your dick's going to get smaller and smaller until it disappears. (laughs) John starts to uh, think about the free folk, and he thinks, They have no laws, no honor, not even simple decency. They steal endlessly from each other, breed like beasts, prefer rape to marriage. Fill the world with baseborn children. Yet he was growing fond of Tormund Giant's bane. Great bag of wind and lies though he was. Long spear as well and egret. No, I will not think about egret. But I love that because he starts off harshly thinking like, fuck these guys, they suck. They have no ethics, you know, like no ethics, no mission statement. And then he's like, but Tormund's cool and Longspear's all right as well. And Egret, no, I don't like, I don't even care about her. I don't care about Egret. I don't, whatever, whatever, whatever. Take a cold shower, John. <laughs> uh, get in the cave. Yeah. But while people like Egret and Tormund make his time in the Free Folk easier, there are still other like really wild people. Yeah. That he has to watch out for people like Stir, 
the Magnar of Then. I actually really like Stir. <laughs> uh, his people think he's more of a god than a lord, which is interesting because that's something that happens. Uh, that's something that's an ongoing theme throughout the Song of Ice and Fire. Mm. You have Harma Dogshead, and she's a chunky woman Bitch. who hates dogs and kills a new one for her banner every day. Horrible. Hello, 911, PETA, <laughs> the police? I'm calling the police? I just am like, I don't know, she doesn't fuck with dogs and she doesn't fuck with me. She does fuck with dogs, that's the problem. So she hates dogs, so she kills a new one to hoist onto her banner every day. Is this partial red wedding foreshadowing? Because later on we get that line about pink snow. I'll call it out when we get there, but it kind of corresponds with Theon's arc. It reminds me of Ramsay Snow. I don't know, it's fun wordplay. I think it's supposed to be intentional, right? And remind us of similar situations in this book. I think it is. Like, there's a lot of language and imagery in here that primes you for the red wedding happening. And I think that this is one of them. So, Harma sucks, whatever. But Rattleshirt and the Weeper also kind of suck. He says that they would slit you as soon as they would spit on you, which was really annoying. That is gonna bug me. In the passage, it literally says, like, they would slit you as soon as they would spit on you. And I get it, it's not supposed to rhyme, but it leads you to think it's gonna rhyme, and then you get to the end of it, and it doesn't rhyme. And it just, it's really annoying. I don't get that relief. Thanks, George. So, <laughs> life is not a song, Chloe. It should be, Eliana. More like chaotic rhyme verse, whatever. So, speaking of chaotic evil at the very least we got Miramir Sixkins god he sucks he does suck uh he's a warg skin changer warg subclass with a big white bear as a steed and a shadow cat and he's got like three wolves that follow him everywhere yeah he thinks he's the shit I mean wouldn't you if I had all these aminals yeah I guess so <laughs> that's true if I, if I rode on a polar bear I would think I was the shit <laughs> So there are places that are weirder than these people in the north, obviously. I mean, you have everything in the lands of always winter, but you have the frost fangs and you even have the ice clans who are said to ride chariots of walrus bones pulled by savage beasts. Or you have cave dwellers who dye their faces purple and green and even men who walk solely barefoot, the horned foots, and their feet are basically leather at this point. So another thing that stood out to me in all of this is, like, Mance's knowledge of the old tongue. It actually kind of reminded me of Danny's story, actually, because Mance likely learned the old tongue after deserting when he joined the Free Folk. Though it, I guess it's possible that he learned it before, because that would actually be a super useful skill for being a part of the Night's Watch and for intel when you think about it. But anyway, he probably learned it later to better communicate with the Free Folk, just as Danny has to learn Dothraki. She already knew Valyrian from her time in the Free Cities, and because as um, a Targaryen, it was something that people wanted to make sure their children knew. And also, and also, Danny is likely the stallion who mounts the world, or at least like Drogon is one of these two. All right, something <laughs> like that. And. Part of this prophecy is that she would unite the Colossars into one enormous Colossar in the way that Mance unites the Free Folk tribes. And at the same time, that's the way that John ends up merging the Free Folk with the North, right? He hmm. uses Stannis for that. And I love this bit about Mance singing 
in the old tongue because of this humanization of this pilgrimage moving south and their words mattering and their songs mattering still even as they die off. These people have their own language and culture and they're being shoved out of their homes by the ice zombies. So Mance, even representing a little bit of that culture, is very nice to hear. Yeah, he cares enough to like learn this thing and go through the effort of it because he thinks it's important. And he uses it to speak with all of them and get on their level. And I just realized, reading this chapter, that the way that John describes how Mance unites the different tribes, I'm going to read this passage aloud because I think it's very important. Mance had spent years assembling this vast plotting host, talking to this clan mother and that Magnar, winning one village with sweet words and another with a song, and a third with the edge of his sword, making peace between Harma Dogshead and the Lord of Bones, between the Hornfoots and the Nightrunners, between the Walrusmen of the Frozen Shore and the Cannibal Clans of the Great Ice Rivers, hammering a hundred different daggers into one great spear aimed at the heart of the Seven Kingdoms. He had no crown, nor scepter, no robes of silk and velvet, but it was plain to John that Mance Raider was a king in more than name. And there's some fantastic language in here, such as that hammering a hundred different daggers into one great spear, it's so reminiscent of what Aegon the Conqueror does with the Iron Throne. He was establishing and making himself a king. And so a lot of people think of Ned's example of ruling the North when Jon advises Stannis of go to the mountain clans and win them over, show them that you're their king, ask them, meet with them. But I don't think that John's necessarily thinking of Ned's example here, because what he's thinking of is, Stannis, you want to be a king? Here's how I've seen a king do it. So when he tells that, he's actually talking about how he's seen it from Mance, because from the get-go in Mance's tent, John sees the respect that Mance pays the people that he wants to lead, how he gets on their level, and he meets with them, and then he brings them all together because he cares, and he's like, Stannis, you gotta show him you care. I would argue that he does learn that from Ned as well, though. I mean, Ned, uh, he learned things about each of his men. Even the hill tribes say, Valiant Ned's precious little girl. Uh, Ned still struck home, so I would argue that John learned not only from Ned, but also from seeing it in Mance and seeing the difference in the free folks politics. And he did learn that directly from Mance, but he did have that background with Ned to go off of, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it could be both. And they're both reflections of these same values in different ways. So he feels like he hasn't learned that much in the face of Corrin dying and Corrin's desertion. Uh, the wildlings don't do anything crazy. They're just marching. He barely even sees Mance. For 8,000 years, the men of House Stark had lived and died to protect their people against such ravagers and reavers. In Bastardborn or no, the same blood ran in his veins. Bran and Rickon are still at Winterfell besides. Maester Lewin, Sir Broderick, Old Nan, Farlin, the Kennelmaster, Micken at his forge, engaged by his ovens. Everyone I ever knew... Everyone I ever loved. If John must slay a man he half admired and almost liked to save them from the mercies of Rattleshirt and Harma Dogshead and the earless Magnus, then that was what he meant to do. So it's just like in a Game of Thrones, he is having these wildlings and these free folk humanize themselves all around him, right? They're coming to life, but at the same time he's telling himself, my family needs me. I have to save them from the wildlings. 
But I feel like he's doing more than saving them from the wildlings in his mind. It's him proving himself to them that he's good enough to be a part of the Starks. He wants to protect them, but the why is the only thing that's absent on the page. We know it's not really from the wildlings. They wouldn't really come close to being successful at raiding Winterfell, even if they made it past the wall. There's that huge shadow that's just poured across the book during Jon's arc right now. The wildlings have no discipline. When we get to the battle at the wall, their number shatters eventually, and you see why. No discipline. But John's doing quite a bit of back and forth with himself as well through the chapter, and he's relying on that black cloak right beneath his saddle. Yes, he is. And regarding those wildlings, John thinks that the Night's Watch are out here beyond the wall. All they really need to do is kill one man. They don't need to kill several of them. They just need to kill Mance in order to break apart this entire host, which I think is an interesting parallel. Like, I don't know that it's going to be exactly the same as in the show, right? Where you just kill the one necromancer and everything else falls. But it kind of speaks to that idea. And, of course, like, as you were talking about regarding John's desire to protect Bran and Rickon and the folks over in Winterfell, and it being his desire to prove himself... There's also, of course, he wants to prove himself because he loves them, too. He loves his family. And it kind of speaks to how later on John's going to be torn between his two great loves. Like here, it's because he's starting to feel that connection to the wildlings. But later on, it's going to be between his Stark family and Daenerys, who on the one hand, he loves, and on the other hand, is a key to his other family. And while the why that you were talking about here, like that why being absent on the page... It's kind of vague here. The Later on, it might be a little more clear in that why, as it clashes against one another, is going to be much stronger. Yeah. So he prays to his father's gods as the host moves along slowly. I really like this line uh, as they move. Most of the column was out of the foothills now, oozing along the west bank of the milk water like honey on a cold winter's morning following the course of the river into the heart of the haunted forest. And interestingly enough, I did notice that a lot of the mentions of honey in John's chapters, there's only like 15 of them, but over half of them have to do with either the North symbolism and personification of the North flowing like honey and Val's hair. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. That is interesting. There's um, it's interesting because as you talk about it being with the north and here pairing it with the milk water, in Exodus, the promised land within Jewish tradition is described as the land of milk and honey. Hmm. So I think that's kind of interesting, right? Especially if it like I think George is definitely playing on that. Mm-hmm. He has to be, like he said, the promised land, milk and honey. Uh, Val's hair being described as like this honey color and honey creeping throughout the snow and all this. Uh, it's got to be something intentional. That's an awesome catch. As they move, John thinks about his sworn brothers, all 300 of them mounted and waiting ahead in the fist of the first men ready to attack. He thinks that Thorin Smallwood and Jarman Buckwell had to have come back ranging by now with news of Mance's host to Mormont and that Mormont would not run but face it head on. So he's preparing himself for that. Then there's this line, 
One day soon, he would hear the sound of war horns and see a column of riders pounding down on them with black cloaks flapping and cold steel in their hands. And he is going to see that, but that's direct Stannis foreshadowing for later on in this book, right? But him seeing his brothers in his mind with their cloaks flapping black in the wind is a really nice thought otherwise. Uh, He's come to see them almost as a family, but... This is a different sort of family that he's trying to assimilate into, and it's starting to feel like he could possibly assimilate into them, even if it's just for a little bit. It's so hard for John. He keeps trying to find a family and finds all these different ones, and he's like, I don't fit. Are you my mother? Oh, Thoros. No. (laughs) Are you my mother? (laughs) The Free Folk leaders each hold a part of the army, although they are undisciplined at best. Harma held a third of the army and all of the giants, the oryx, and the fire flingers. And then Mance takes the center with another third, guarding the remains of their last summer harvest. Damn, that's so scary. All right. And smaller bands of outriders follow Rattleshirt, Jarl, 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 Torment, and the Weeper, keeping order. Jarlsberg? The cheese? <laughs> the cheeseling? Oh, is he part of the last summer harvest? <laughs> Only one in a hundred wildlings that are mounted, and John thinks Mormon's gonna axe through them super easily, and that Mance had best blunt the force in the center, and like, if Mance fell, the wall would be safe actually for another hundred years! The wall was not safe for another hundred years, subtext. Like another hundred, I don't know, hours. Yeah. John thumbs the pommel of his sword, the wolf pommel, and the snow falls heavily down. Ghost makes off to hunt, he always returns at nightfall to camp, and as John catches up with Tormund and company, they all start to joke about him and the mammoths and the giants, which he's seeing for the first time, and that leads Egret to sing a half-assed rendition of The Last of the Giants. Do you know The Last of the Giants? Without waiting for an answer, Egret said, You need a deeper voice than mine to do it proper. Then she sang, Oh, I am the last of the giants. My people are gone from the earth. Tormund Giantsbane heard the words and grinned. The last of the great mountain giants who ruled all the world at <laughs> my birth. He bellowed back through the snow. Longspear Reich joined in singing. Oh, the small folk have stolen my forest. They've stolen my rivers and hills. And, and they built a built great, a great wall, wall through my, my valleys, valleys. And fished, and all, fished the, all the fish from, from my, my rills. Uh, Egret and Tormund sang back at him in turn in suitably gigantic voices. Tormund's sons, Torag and Dormund, added their deep voices as well, then his daughter Munda and all the rest. Others began to bang their spears on leathern shields to keep rough time until the whole war band was singing as they rode. In stone halls they burned their great fires, in stone halls they forged their sharp spears. Whilst I walk alone in the mountains with no true companion but tears. They hunt me with dogs in the daylight. They hunt me with torches by night. For these men who are small can never stand tall whilst giants still walk in the light. Oh, I am the last of the giants, so learn well the words of my song. For when I am gone, the singing will fade and the silence shall last long and long. There were tears on Egret's cheeks when the song ended. Why are you weeping? John asked. It was only a song. There are hundreds of giants. I've just seen them. Oh, hundreds, she said furiously. You know nothing, Jon Snow. You- Jon! First off, spew. S-P-E-W. Hermione Granger understands. Uh, second off, 
the song is pretty meta right like the whole Mm -hmm. refugee arc like there's not much to really explain you guys have seen it and there's even more on a personal level for john it kind of speaks for itself for all of that so as you can tell by the way that chloe and i read this passage fun fact michael aka bookshelf stud (laughs) on reddit um he was here and joined us for a Theon episode long ago has pointed out to me that you can in fact sing the song The Last of the Giants to the tune of the Mexican hat dance. So that's why that happened. Also, the theme of The Last of the Giants and being alone, throwing this out there, it's the boulevard of broken dreams of A Song of Ice and Fire. But lastly, also in a way, being The Last of the Giants, it's kind of about both John and Danny's storylines too. As Danny thinks of herself as the last of the dragons, finds out she isn't, and then later on, I guess John's the last of the dragons. Yep. 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 So absolutely major subtext that they really want us to grab from this. Absolutely. <laughs> it's got thematic resonance all over. Oh my god! Song of Ice and Fire. So you may have noticed Eliana as Egret interrupted mm. herself and yelled John at the end because Egret interrupts John. A bird attacks him, a fucking burb, or else wow. burb, rakes him across the face with its talons, and Egret tries to protect him with a dagger, a bone uh, a bone hilt dagger. Is this... So, speaking of red wedding things, bird raking across face, mm. things raking across faces yeah, in general. that could be Catelyn. something. That could totally be something. Maybe. 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 maybe it's nothing, but maybe it's something. Echoing imagery at the very least. A motif, if you will. At least. And, I mean... Let's face it, this is literally the whole book. You're seeing a lot of the same stuff. You're seeing crows feasting on things. Wow. I mean, it's war. People are dead. At the very end of the book, everything is in ruins. A storm of swords. <laughs> so Rattleshirt comes to take John to Mance, and Rattleshirt's pissed, and everyone's like, oh, the eagle attacks John, and then Rattleshirt comes. So it was obviously planned. And Rattleshirt is treating him like a traitor out of nowhere, and Egret and Torment are like defending him. But Rattleshirt decides he's going to take him to Mance. Can a bird hate? John had slain the wildling Orel, but some part of the man remained within the eagle. Interestingly enough, that line reminds me of Bloodraven, right? That hmm. that whole idea, can a bird hate? And Bloodraven, of course, has the sister he loved, the brother he hated, the brother he lost. Mm, the burb he hated, the burb he loved. Yeah, and Bloodraven inside a bird. Yeah, dude, Bloodraven can hate. I think we've learned that. <laughs> That's true. You're right. That's a really good connection. I didn't understand this one line um, until you spelled it out for me. I get it. John then hurries to his horse and he prepares for a battle of wits with Mance. It's really crazy because he like he runs out to get to his horse and it doesn't explain why just that like he hurries to mount his horse before he meets mance and at first i was all like is this like pride because you want to be mounted and you want to seem like the bigger man you don't want to be like on your feet and feel low but then i was like oh he doesn't want them to discover his black cloak beneath his saddle that's why he hurries to the horse I think that's a really good catch, and I think that's why John does it. Um, now that you've said that aloud, it has sparked for me the thought that John then is a mirror for Mance. Mance didn't want to give up his other cloak, mm. which is why he deserted, and John doesn't want to give up his other cloak either. Mm. 
That's the thought. Very interesting. No, it's true. Egret tries to ride on with them, and Rattleshirt doesn't really want her to. She still stays on, and the snow falls deeper and deeper. Night keeps descending on them. It's closer and closer, and the fist of the first men emerges. But where John thought his brothers may have, you know, been waiting, it's silent. There's no noise. Uh, He wonders if his brothers have already made their stand and slaughtered and run, but as they reach the bottom of the slope, the southern slope, the ground is covered in entrails. And the first thing... Sorry, Eliana, don't listen to any of this. Just log off while you can. The first thing that John thinks is wolves eat their prey, and he realizes that the, the horses are dead, they're scattered, their body parts are everywhere. It was not a wolf that attacked them. (sighs) So the wildlings strip the horses of useful things like steel, leather, horseshoes, and Rattleshirt points John to join Mance at the top of the slope. And John looks around at the horrible destruction and thinks he had never seen pink snow before, which reminds me of Ramsey Snow. That's another Red Wedding-esque A Storm of Swords Bolton-esque connection that I kind of noticed. Yeah, I definitely, that's like the thought that came to my mind as well. I've never thought of it before. Like, immediately I looked at it yeah. and I was like, that's about Ramsey. Yeah. I don't know, like, how strong it is, but it is interesting, you know, with the way that Clash ended. Definitely feels important Yeah, in that way. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh, very much so connected, even if we don't see him directly here. Yeah, it's kind of like a reminder, right? Because we don't see that storyline in A Storm of Swords, but it's like, hey, this is in the background, everyone, remember? Well, interestingly enough, he then passes some of Chet's dead dogs. Uh, Mm. So that reminds me of, of course, the dogs at Winterfell and Ramsay and his hounds. And he thinks about Sam. He wonders if Sam made it out safe from whatever happened here. God, sorry, that Sam chapter is like... So good. Not even like Loki, like high key, one of my favorite chapters. It's maybe so my favorite good. chapter in the in, in the entire series. It's like the reluctant entire hero. Series. Like you it's the unexpected hero. You don't expect Sam to do it, but then he does it and you're like, oh shit. There's all of that. It's like the way it opens too, and the constant repetition of the sobbing Sam took another step. It's yeah. so well done. God, I can't Ugh. wait till we get there. But for now, we're stuck on John 2. <laughs> it's a good chapter. No, it's also. so good. It's so good. Uh, it's not Sam 1, but... Yeah, yeah. So Mance, Harma, Jarl, Steer, and Faramir <laughs> six skins all wait ahead in the remaining tents from the slaughter. Uh, and Mance is wearing this helm that I just want to call out. It's fucking ridiculous. It's a great bronze and iron helm with raven wings at either temple. What the Buck? Who's whose home do you think this used to be? I was thinking that like I don't know, it could have been a Malister, but it's a Raven Wings, not Eagle Wings. So And how does okay, I think that's a great point because now I'm like, how does John know the difference between a Raven Wing and an Eagle Wing on a helm? Like how It could have been like nice the, a Blackwood or a Corbray or a Dogget or a Horse. Hmm. I mean yeah, I think all of these are possible. I think hmm. it's a perfectly apt helm for Mance, too, though. It's something I should put some thought into. I might uh, theorize it later. Huh. Yeah, and it it does encompass him well, being a crow and then leaving from that, becoming a raven. Bigger, a bigger burb. Yeah. Mance asks John, <laughs> bro, what happened to your eye? 
Uh, but he's actually really mad. And then Igor tells Mance what happened. And then to his chagrin, because once more, guys, he's trying to figure out John's lies. <laughs> yeah, Mance is totally not having it. And John's like, oh, fuck, you got me. <laughs> you got me! Gene uh... Barbershop! Okay. <laughs> Would you like to keep your eye, John? <laughs> Asked the king beyond the wall. If so, tell me how many they were. And try and speak the truth this time, bastard of Winterfell. I love the emphasis here. This time, Mance uses the word to try to hurt him. And he may see through John's lies, but John is just like Ned, holding it close to his heart. John knows he still has a chance because Mance thinks being called a bastard would hurt him mm. because of the story that John told him, right, of being the bastard of Winterfell. But. Much like Lord Snow at Castle Black no longer hurt him, John has turned these words into just words, like Tyrion told him to do. So he's able to see through it, and he knows that he can still play a few a few moves in this game. Yeah, that's actually... I didn't understand what you were pointing out there, but now I see it, and that's totally true. Yeah. That's where Vance gets the idea from. I get it now. Calling wow. him Bastard of Winterfell. Why would that matter? He's been the Bastard of Winterfell his whole life. Yeah, but yeah, it's because, as you said, he still believes a little bit of what John tells him. And this time, you know, John tells him actually the truth. For realsies. He's like, we were once 300, but uh, I guess not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Harma had found over 100 horses, mm. aw, with more dead, and buried beneath snow in the east. And the man's demands that John tell him who held the command. And John's like, wait, so you haven't found the body yet? Yeah. And Mance is like, don't fuck with me. <laughs> Just tell me the truth, kid. I'm not here to play good cop, bad cop. It's bad cop and worse cop. Just tell it to me or I'm going to give you the fucking rattleshirt. We are not doing this. We're not playing fucking games, John. Yeah. John struggles with giving Mance the truth, but he finally remembers what Corrin said, that you must not balk. Balk. And he tells them, the old bear commanded here and Bowen Marsh commands at Castle Black. His frown cracked the blood on his cheek. This is too hard, John thought in despair. How do I play the turn cloak without becoming one? Corrin had not told him that. But the second step is always easier than the first. I wanted us to read this line just because it's so good. Because this is John's one of many, so many vows that make you swear and swear moments. And it's such a great question. How much does one pretend until they are no longer pretending? Like, where is the line between when your actions are the same as being true to what you're pretending to be because they have the same consequence. And so I think there's this incredible irony here in the scene because John is wrestling with himself and that feeling that he is a treasonous turncloak because like on a reread, we see that John feels way more loyalty to the Night's Watch than some of the other survivors of the attack on the Fist of the First Men who are later going to mutiny at Crashers. So again, there's that question, where's the line between the turncloak playing the turncloak, and being one. Yeah, when do you cross over? When is it too far gone? When can you not come back? He tells them that the old bear was ready for, and he trails off, but Mance finishes it himself, and he answers, for me, for myself, for Mance Raider. 
for me, bitch. Had I been fool enough to storm this hill, I might have lost five men for every crow I slew and still counted myself lucky. His mouth grew hard. But when the dead walk, walls and stakes and swords mean nothing. You cannot fight the dead, Jon Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. He gazed up at the darkening sky and said, The crows may have helped us more than they know. I'd wondered why we'd suffered no attacks. But there's still a hundred leagues to go, and the cold is rising. Faramir, send your wolves sniffing after the whites. I won't have them taking us unawares. My lord of bones, double all the patrols and make certain every man has torch and flint. Stir, Jarl, you ride at first light. I love that he had a plan. I thought that was interesting because he's the only quote-unquote king that's had a plan against the others up until, you know, uh, Stannis and John, their little mini reign. Aw, yeah. Get the patrols, do this, do that, you man this. I mean, he has it under control-ish. Ish. He's doing the best he can, and he's doing pretty alright, all things considered, you know? Yeah, like he says, you can't fight death. But John can, and he will. Many ways, honestly. Mm, truly. <laughs> so, Rattleshirt is all, come on, give me his bones, fuck this guy. But Egret argues, she's like, he was just trying to save his brothers, and he saved me from dying too, you know? And John looks Mance straight in the eyes and says, I wear your cloak that you gave me. And then Egret lays down this big old lie and goes, A sheepskin cloak, said Egret, and there's many a night we dance between it, too. Mm, the things we do for love, Egret. Yeah. And also, I forgot this earlier, like, uh, and didn't catch it when John's cloak was described, but it is a sheepskin cloak, and therefore John is... Ah! Oh! <laughs> Don't say <laughs> it! He's a wolf. In sheep's clothing. Uh, <laughs> George he is, is ab- But, like, this is intentional. I refuse to believe this is not intentional. Turn, John, and die. Yeah. I mean, this is like a saying. Like, that's what it is. And he's going to lead to... His actions are very much going to lead to the defeat of the free folk just barely. Yeah. With Egret's life on the line, John has to lie and... We get that great line that Robert says to Ned Stark in A Game of Thrones, you can never lie for love nor honor, Ned Stark. And it reminds me very much of John. And then there's this little, just this little quote back and forth between him and Egret. And he thinks, it was easy to lose your way beyond the wall. John did not know that he could tell honor from shame anymore or right from wrong. Father, forgive me. Yes, he said. Father, forgive me. Oh. Dad, no. Uh, Ned Stark died for our sins. Quick thought about this moment. Just as in John's last chapter, Tormund is actually somehow playing that role as the key to truth that saves John's ass once more, but like in a slightly different way. Because last time, it was Tormund naming Craster as john's source for information and that prevented mance from knowing john's true loyalty and this time john's actually very lucky for Tormund's absence because that means that there's no one to counter john's loyalty slash his and egret's claim that they lie together every night because yeah. we've just seen that conversation that they do not <laughs> they do not so 
Mance would never part lovers, he says, and he sends John and Egret along with Steer and Jarl to climb the wall on a special project using special resources allocated just <laughs> for this. And John confronts Egret about her honorable lies. I think that the language that Mance uses here regarding how he wouldn't part lovers is interesting. What he says is he could not part two hearts that beat as one, which turns out is actually the title of a song that's played at several weddings throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. And of course, here in this moment, John is wearing a different cloak, as pointed out by Egret. Yeah, and later she starts to sleep in that said cloak of protection. Mm-hmm. And so, like, interestingly, like, you know, right here, right, they're lying in that moment. But this is actually a song that Mance is going to play later on at Ramsey's wedding. And it's actually also a song that was played at The Peach by Thomas Seven Strings. I don't know what that part means, but, like, it's also played at Liza and Peter's wedding. And it's even played at the wedding tourney at Whitehall's, which turns out was actually a Blackfire cover-up. It's interesting, right? Because we know that Ramsay's wedding to Arya is a farce. Lies and Peter's is too, so is the one at White Walls. And so so first I want to point out that like it's very apt of Mance to slip this kind of language of songs that he loves so much into this exchange. It adds to his character and how he sees the world. He's stern, but he's an idealist. He has this big dream of uniting and saving the people beyond the wall, and this is adding on to that characterization. But also, coming back to like that wedding and the ones that are played, right? is this song perhaps another kind of lies in Arbor Gold thing? I think you might be onto something here, because it's only being played during these fake weddings and fake events. White big, walls. Big romances. Yes. Yeah. Also, side note, White Walls. Yes, Blackfire, obviously, Rebellion and Blackfire cover-up. Also, totally foreshadowing, or not foreshadowing, backshadowing, hindsight shadowing of the tourney at Harrenhal. Oh, absolutely. It's another one of those, like, echoes. Cool. Okay. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. yeah. I really, really agree that uh, the two hearts that beat as one has to be kind of like a lies in arbor gold situation it definitely is signifying something fake is going on behind the scenes i love that yeah it's a weird weird song we don't know the lyrics we don't what what strange song can we graft (laughs) like what tune can we graft onto it who knows who knows seeing as last week the week before we had seasons of love last week we had dornishman's Mm. wife and this week we have two hearts that beat as one Mm-hmm. Interesting. In the last of the giants, got yes, two songs. Last of the giants. So John truly is the song of Ice yeah. and Fire. Got a whole bunch of got enough for an EP Did you get right it? now. Did you get it? Yeah, he is. Yes, He's the I EP do. of Ice and Fire. Aw. Ghost padded beside their garrons as John and Egret descended the fist. It was not until they were halfway across the milk water that John felt safe enough to say, "I never asked you to lie for me." I never did, she said. I left out part is all. You said that we fuck beneath your cloak many a night. <laughs> that was very forward, Eliana. I never said when we started, though. The smile she gave him was almost shy. Find another place for ghosts to sleep tonight, Jon Snow. It's like man said, deeds is truer than words. Pull your dick out, boy. <laughs> Take a cold shower, Jon Snow. <laughs> If you had taken a cold shower earlier. Oh my god, keep your dick out. Don't take a cold shower. Uh, So, (laughs) in all seriousness, whip it out, John Snow. In all seriousness, 
a really blunt comparison, just like bottom ground that I guess we could give to Egret that I've kind of strayed from. Doesn't work perfectly in status for the characters, but something interesting. Every step of the way, Egret has defended Jon Snow, right? She's lied for him. She said, no, no, he's a good guy. We got to keep him. He's good. He killed Corrin. He protected me. Reminds me a lot of somebody else that has a very ferocious personality. They shoved him down every time he tried to rise and kicked him when he curled up on the ground. But then they heard a roar. That's my father's man you're kicking, howled the she-wolf. Are you telling me that Liana and Helen were a thing? Is that what you're saying, Chloe? <laughs> Liana and Helen. I literally don't have the energy one. for your bullshit. <laughs> No, Eliana, oh, what I'm, I'm about telling you is that Liana and Egret have some very minor rough parallels. You pair this with Bale the Bard's story, and later on in A Storm of Swords, John gets those thoughts. You were wrong to love her, you were wrong to leave her. Egret uh. has some really subtle Liana vibes. Some of those parallels between Liana, Egret, John, and Rhaegar might also give us more insight to what sort of lies Rhaegar and Lyanna may or may not have told, and whether they led to true love or not. Those lies at least were meant to protect each other or protect John or even protect the kingdom and realm. I mean, look, maybe the White Walkers learned to make boats, you know, like that's our biggest fear. If they make boats, <laughs> it's I mean, over for us. It's over. It's over. They're going to ET. They're going everywhere. So Maybe Rhaegar was an asshole fool who believed in prophecy and Lyanna was young, naive, and escaping the prison of marriage to a guy who doesn't get a girl to orgasm before he blows his load. Also marital rape. Anyways, I digress. We don't know. We don't know. But there's a lot to frame for both relationships and they obviously vibe really hard with each other. And we see a lot of that next week in the cave with Vanessa of the Night's Cast. We'll be talking about that with how John and Egret never want to leave that cave. And I'm sure Rhaegar and Lyanna probably didn't want to leave the tower. And eventually we'll get into betrayal. Betrayal. Yes, betrayal. And we'll talk a lot then about some of these parallels as well. And the ideas and thoughts that haunt John. Yes. And of course, as with John and Egret, you're saying Rhaegar and Lyanna, all of those. What's the truth? What's not? What's the truth? Hey, over both of them. Two hearts, a beat as one. Anyway, um, yes, I'm very excited to get into this and dig deeper into these relationships next week. Yes, I can't wait. I'm so excited to have Vanessa on. This chapter is thick. Like we said, two C's. I'm like, wow, we just digested this. I need a drink. I need a break. <laughs> mm -hmm. You need a cold shower. Oh, my God. And someone warm next to you <laughs> later. Ew. Ew. You guys, thanks for listening this week. We're really excited to have Vanessa Cole from Night's Cast on next week. Again, check her out on Twitter. Her Twitter account is BK Cole Artist. And you can check out the Night's Cast at the Night's Cast. And if you are done checking them out, make sure you flash over to our Twitter as well, where sometimes we tweet good things. Uh, we, we just retweeted a really cool collage of pictures of me and Eliana. <laughs> living our best lives uh so follow us girls gone canon on twitter at girls gone canon and hey if you enjoyed this week's episode or you want to chat about it or chat about anything else feel free to send us an email at girls gone canon at gmail.com we love hearing from you 
And of course, if you want to catch our next few episodes or anything else, be sure to subscribe to us. You can find us on iTunes, on Google Play, on Podbean, on Spotify, on Acast, and on Stitcher. And if you've got a few bucks burning a hole in your wallet, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Our tiers start at $1 and up. Uh, $5 and up patrons do get access to a special Patreon-only episode. $5 and up patrons only. You guys will get this month a uh, episode on Northern Independence, which I'm very excited about. But feel free to check out a lot of our past episodes, including the Winds of Winter sample chapters and a very extensive Dance of the Dragon series. And of course, we are starting a new series at the end of July. Another reread series, free to the public. It'll be the His Dark Materials series. We'll be starting with Northern Lights, a.k.a. The Golden Compass, depending on where you live. It should be good. I'm very excited. And as always, you guys, I am Chloe, one of your hosts. You know where to find me on the internet. And I am Eliana, another one of your hosts. Never find me on the internet. Oh my god, goodbye. You guys are our favorites. I don't know what to do with you, though. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) 